Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer, Jim Calhoun. Welcome in, NASCAR icon, Dale Earnhardt Jr. 93. Kirk Herbstreit is on the phone. Speak America. Here. Here. Podcast. It is either Sunday, November 12th. Or Monday, November 13th, 2023. People, hope everybody's doing well. Hope everybody's having a great day. And the reason that I give you the dual date to lead the show, there is so much going on in college sports. We're going to do the rare drop this on a Sunday night as a podcast type of night, okay? We're going to talk. Jimbo Fisher is out at Texas A&M. Did not think it was going to happen this year. We're going to break it down from all angles. Why now? who's realistic, the transfer portal element of it, it is going to be bananas. From there, we're going to do this crazy story and actually talk about what happened on the field this weekend. Michigan beats Penn State. What does it mean for Michigan? What does it mean for Penn State? We'll talk about every angle on that game. Then we'll wrap with Georgia destroying Ole Miss. What does it mean for Georgia? Are they the best team in the country? Jaden Daniels, a record-setting night, in my opinion, should be the Heisman favorite. Oh, by the way, Florida, what does it mean for them? We'll talk about some of the Pac-12 stuff. We'll also shout out our guy, Jed Fish, getting a mega victory over, eh, not really a mega victory, but he gets a win over Colorado. Arizona football deserves credit. By the way, speaking of football, quick scheduling note. There's just no time on today's show for basketball. I can't give you an hour and 45 minutes of content, okay? But if you love college basketball, stick with us. We will start ramping up the basketball coverage. The reason I talk about it with Arizona, Arizona went to Duke on Friday night and beat Duke just like I told you on Friday's show. So stick with us. Wednesday, we will react to the Champions Classic where Kentucky plays Kansas, where Duke plays Michigan State, excuse me. So be ready. We're going to have college hoops pretty much on every episode of this show going forward. But today it is all football because there is so much to get into. So let's not waste any more time. There is no more time to waste. And ooh, the topic of the day and the topic of the day, bluntly, yeah, I'll just say this. You know, we have a big story on our hands. Like, like when Michigan, Penn State, everything that has happened there, Michigan rallies to win. When that gets bumped to the B block. You know, something big broke. And that is exactly what happened on Sunday morning. As a story that we've talked about really for like two years now, a story that we've talked about multiple times just in the last couple of weeks, a story that bluntly I did not think was going to happen this year. I thought it could, didn't think it would. Oh, it happened. 
Jimbo Fisher, as first reported by Billy Lucci, Texags.com, want to give him credit because he is all over that Texas A&M beat. Billy Lucci reported and everybody else confirmed. Jimbo Fisher has been fired as the head coach at Texas A&M. Yes, he is owed $76 million at buyout, buddy. Oh, by the way, according to multiple reports and basically his contract, he is owed like $19 million of that within 30 days. This is shocking. This is stunning. I'll be blunt. I'm recording here early Monday, early Sunday. Just woke up. If you're listening Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, forgive me. I'm going to go all over the place, dive in. My hands are flying. It's crazy chaos in the streets as we talk about Jimbo Fisher being gone. Okay. So let's dive in. Um, and I and I want to hit on this from all angles, right? I want to talk about why it happened now, who's next, the portal ramifications, all that. But let me start with this. The first sign you know it's it's not going well, first of all, it's not going good. We all know that. But I thought it was interesting that multiple outlets, Yahoo and ESPN, both reported there was a Board of Regents meeting earlier this week. That's never a good piece of news. Now, I know Board of Regents meetings happen all the time. But when you get all those powerful people in the same place, the football program is struggling. You know something bad is probably going to happen. And so what's clear is this was obviously a decision that was made probably Thursday, Friday. Didn't want to disrupt the week. They waited until Sunday to make it happen. If you remember a few weeks ago, Coach O, or a few years ago, Coach O, same thing happens. He loses to Kentucky, negotiates a buyout during the week. Uh, and I don't think he even negotiated. He was just given the buyout. And then they actually won on Saturday against Florida. He gets fired after winning a game. Jimbo Fisher, much the same. So this was clear, clearly been in the works for 72 plus hours. And let me just say, like, why did it happen now? Uh, there's a few reasons. One, the team simply isn't good enough. And, and we all know the numbers, but I do think they are kind of jarring. Even with the win, Texas A&M went to six and four on Saturday night. But six and four in year six simply isn't good enough. First of all, let's just get to the raw stats they're jarring. Texas A&M has not won a road game. I, I throw out these stats just to give you context of how bad things have been. Texas A&M has not won a road game. Since 2021, the 2021 season, okay, Jimbo under Jimbo Fisher, they never won a single game on the road against a ranked team. So that gives you a little context of how things have been. We'll give you a little bit more context here as we uh, as we put the kind of moratorium on Jimbo Fisher. Finishes 45 and 25 overall, but 27 and 21 in SEC play. And bluntly, in year six, that simply isn't good enough, right? This was a guy that was brought in that was paid tens of millions of dollars to compete at the highest levels of this conference with the Alabamas, with the LSUs, with the Georgias, obviously Texas and Oklahoma coming next year. And so to be 27 and 21, to not have a single road win in two years and a couple things, this was kind of the year where you had to start building momentum. Everyone kept asking me in, in July and August, Taurus, what is it going to take for Jimbo Fisher to keep his job? And what I said is, look, you don't have to make the college football playoff this year, but you got to go nine and three. You got to build some momentum so that next year, when all those guys that were in that 2022 recruiting class are draft eligible juniors, you feel like you have a team to, that can compete for a national championship. And so with that as an expectation, kind of nine and three ish, 10 and two competing for a playoff berth, to be at five, be at six and four, including the win on Saturday. That's just not good enough. And beyond that, it's not that you're six and four. You've lost every meaningful game of the season at Miami when we thought Miami was good and they're not. Loss. Uh, Alabama at home when you built some momentum early in SEC play. Loss in a game you could have won. Tex Tennessee in a game you could have, maybe should have won. 
at Tennessee, you lose, and obviously Ole Miss a few weeks ago. And so all of those games essentially, except for maybe Miami, were winnable. All of them came down to a decision or two, a play or two, a moment or two, and every time Texas A&M was on the wrong side of it. And so I don't think there's any expectation that you were going to beat LSU two weeks from now. For people who don't know, know the schedule, they play Abilene Christian next, uh, and then from there they close at LSU. Don't think you're going you're gonna to beat LSU. But then here's the other thing. And I, I heard this this week. I was kind of just calling around talking to people. I thought it was an interesting comment. They said the worst case scenario isn't finishing seven and five. The worst case scenario is finishing seven and five, bringing back Jimbo Fisher. And then next year, he over exceeds expectations, right? Because if you bring back Jimbo Fisher for 2024 at this point, one of two things is going to happen. And I just did, did finger stuff. You know, my hands were flying there. Forgive me if you're watching on YouTube. If you bring back Jimbo Fisher, one of two things is going to happen. Either you underachieve again, and then you just kick the can down the road for a year. And at that point, the SEC is that much tougher. Oklahoma, Texas are established, whatever. But here's the worst. Here's actually the worst scenario is that you don't trust Jimbo Fisher now. It's year six now. What happens if you end up actually meeting or exceeding expectations next year? And then all of those draft eligible juniors, the Walter Nolans, the Evan Stewart's, the whomever, Connor Wigman's, they all go pro. And then you're stuck with Jimbo Fisher another two or three years because you can't fire him off of a 10 or 11 win season. So even if he somehow meets or exceeds expectations, you're kind of even more screwed because then you're stuck with him for another two or three years after that. So it's a lot of money. I'm not saying that I would have been part of it, but I don't have billions of dollars to spend like some of these boosters. And so I get why it was done. And most specifically, because a lot of people are going to ask, why was it done now? The reason it was done now was point blank, simple. It was because of recruiting, okay? The bottom line is for people who don't follow the calendars, National Signing Day is about a month from now. And on top of that, the portal cycle basically opens, you know, right around the start, you know, right right after those conference championship games. And so I bring it up because you basically have to have a coach in place really about two weeks from today, two weeks from tomorrow, two weeks from this Monday, from Sunday, from Tuesday, whenever you're listening. Because if that portal cycle opens, and I think technically the players can get in the second that their coach is fired, but at the same time, if you wait, if you go too long, you know what ends up happening? If you start that search the day the season ends, well, by the way, what if you beat LSU and you go eight and four? But even if you pl- if you start it the, the day the season ends, then all of a sudden, all those guys have days and days to get in the portal while you don't have a head coach. They have days and days to be contacted by other schools, to hear from other people. And so ultimately, listen, Texas A&M is still going to lose some guys to the portal once the season ends because that's every school in America. But I bring it up because ultimately the goal is to have a guy in place the day the regular season ends, maybe the day after, maybe the Sunday after, so that that guy not only could start recruiting, the most important thing that the next coach has to do is re-recruit the Texas A&M roster. Because in a 12-team playoff era next year, you have a playoff roster in that building if you can get the most of it. So let's really quickly dive into coaching candidates. Uh, you know, listen, this stuff is going to change over the course of the next two, three weeks. Forgive me. We're going to cover it a lot. We're going to probably do an update every single day based on reports. Okay. But I think the early reports are, listen, if you're going to spend $75 million plus to get rid of a head coach, probably $100 million plus if you include buyouts for, I'm sure, DJ Durkin and, and Mike Elko, or Mike Elko, we'll get to him in a minute. DJ Durkin and Bobby Petrino are on multi-year deals. Um, if you, if you're willing to spend 75 to hundred million to get rid of this staff, 
my assumption is money is of no object. So I do think, look, they're going to kick the can on some of the biggest names that in theory could be available. Listen, say what you want about Texas A&M. Nobody thought Jimbo Fisher was available six years ago when they hired him. And then they made him an offer he couldn't refuse. And then he ended up not refusing it. And that's how we got in this mess in the first place. But you start looking at candidates. I've seen the names. Listen, Dan Lanning is an obvious one. 30, mid-30s. I think he's got the blueprint. I think he's going to be great at Oregon. Great recruiter. Great portal guy. Great on game day. Great evaluator. You know, fill in the blank. I think Oregon might be the second or third best team in the country right now. Same time. 20 plus million dollar buyout to get him out of his contract. So I know money is of no issue to AM, but now you're talking about a hundred plus million dollars just in buyout just to get Dan Lanning. And that that's including Jimbo, his staff, and Dan Lanning. Plus, oh, by the way, NIL, this, that, the other thing. I I don't think Dan Lanning is leaving because I think he's actually set up very nicely to have success at Oregon. I mean, Oregon goes to the Big Ten next year outside of Ohio State and Michigan. I mean, I, I saw Penn State on Saturday. Penn State ain't in the same stratosphere as Oregon right now, let alone the Illinois, the Iowa's, the Nebraska's. Like, like, nope. Like, there's two teams right now that are built to compete with Oregon right now. And I think Oregon's maybe a better job. Now, Texas AM has the better recruiting base, all that. But at the same time, like, I don't think he's leaving Oregon. Did see Kalen DeBoer, uh, Washington. One thing I'll say about him, salary is not that high. Um, but the 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 new AD, he kind of said on his opening press conference. Remember, Washington's AD, Jen Cohen, left for USC. The new AD comes in. He says, listen, getting Kalen DeBoer here long term, that is the end. That, that's my only priority right now. And so that that athletic department isn't in great shape financially. But guess what? They are getting one big check from the Big Ten here in the coming weeks and so or coming years. And so Kalen DeBoer, I mean, listen, I mean, if you could get him, get him. But he's from South Dakota, started his coaching career in South Dakota, success at Fresno State before he ends up at Washington. He feels like a West Coast, Northwest kind of guy. I mean, even if you you listen to him in interviews, he doesn't say much. He doesn't talk much. He just kind of goes about his business. Don't know if you can bring that. I'm not saying he can't. I'm just saying I don't know if he fits Texas A&M, the culture, the excitement, the day-to-day grind of what that job is. Not really sure. Also saw Lane Kiffin. I'll just say this. If Lane Kiffin somehow took the job, that would be the most hysterical turn in the history of college football. First of all, this guy signed a huge contract last offseason. I thought we were done listing him as a candidate once he turned down the Auburn job, whatever. Yet here we are. But the way that Lane Kiffin has made fun of Jimbo Fisher, I mean, listen, I'll say this. There is clearly uh, an admiration for what Texas A&M has from Lane Kiffin. They just played two weeks ago. Lane Kiffin was talking about, oh, my God, greatest defensive line I've ever seen. NFL defensive line. I love the the this and that, you know, and has made so many jokes and comments and pokes at the NIL stuff. Be very interesting if he took the job. Realistically, though, listen, and we're going to spend a lot of time diving into candidates over these next couple of weeks. But in my opinion, end of story, like when I look at this situation, the, I, 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 the guy, that, I'll just be blunt, the guy that I think is most realistic is Duke coach Mike Elko. For people who don't know the background, Mike Elko is a guy that three years ago was the, the defensive coordinator at Texas A&M. And it's kind of interesting because you can kind of draw a parallel between the program was never great, but the program absolutely took a nosedive the second that he left. And why I think you consider Mike Elko, why I think he's probably the guy that ultimately ends up getting the job is because one, he knows, first, first of all, he's a great coach. Goes to Duke at year one and wins nine games. This year, they're six and four, but their star quarterback, Riley Leonard, has been in and out of the lineup all year. Just getting that team to six plus wins, 
beating Clemson, destroying Clemson, beating Notre Dame. It doesn't get much better than that. Actually, they lost to Notre Dame. Forgive me. But they beat, who was it? Louisville, uh, Clemson. They have a very good resume. But you start to look at Mike Elko and a couple of things stand out. One, what's the ceiling at Duke? Listen, you you don't root for a program to lose a, a rising star in the coaching business like that. But at the same time, like, I mean, he loses his starting quarterback. The whole program goes in the tank. And so I just bring it up because of the fact that, like, when I look at Mike Elko, there's such an obvious ceiling at Duke, even when things break right, even when Clemson is down. Are you really going to be in a position where, um, you know, you're competing at the highest level? I just think it is just so, so, so impossible. By the way, the fact that they even competed with North Carolina on Saturday shows you what kind of coach this guy is. So I think he's a heck of a coach. And then for people who do not know, he obviously was the defensive coordinator at Texas A&M for a long time under Jimbo Fisher. And what I think is lost in the shuffle, he was actually the guy that recruited a lot of the guys that are going to be juniors on this roster. A lot of those defensive guys, Walter Nolan, uh, you know, whoever, they have relationships with Mike Elko. They have relationships with him. They like him. They believe in him. As a matter of fact, I remember talking to people around A&M. When he took that Duke job, there was fear to, you know, the it was the, the, the winter of 2021 into 2022. There was a fear that they were going to lose a lot of those guys because of their relationship with Mike Elko. So if you can get him, get him in that building two Sundays from now, and have him ready to talk to those guys, I believe that most of them will stay. So Mike Elko, to me, is the obvious name. Lastly, listen, it wouldn't be a coaching carousel segment if I didn't at least address the elephant in the room. I have no idea about Urban Meyer. I'll be blunt. After I get done with this, I'll probably try to make some phone calls to Texas A&M. Would they ever actually be interested in Urban Meyer? I have no idea. But a couple things stand out. One, I've said it, and there's maybe another segment just on Urban Meyer to be had. Urban Meyer is going to coach again. Like, like he's not even 60 years old. Nick Saban's 72, and he's still going on like a, a freaking freight train, okay? Urban Meyer is 60 years old. He's younger than Jim Harbaugh. He's younger than Brian Kelly. I find it impossible to believe that he is never coaching again. And I think Texas A&M is one of the few places that would actually, that would actually really want him. I, I, I can't speak for every fan. Can't speak for every booster. Can't speak for every guy that's going to write a check. Can't speak for Ross Bjork, the AD. But Texas A&M wants to win. The SEC is getting tougher. Texas and Oklahoma are coming. You want to win. There's only one guy that's won at the highest of levels that's available, unless you get Bob Stoops out of retirement, and he ain't coming out of retirement. And so to me, Urban Meyer makes sense. I will say, by the way, I will say, we've talked about it when we've talked Michigan State. You know, the Michigan State people for a, a moment really thought he was interested in that job. I'm just going to tell you, I was told over the last couple of weeks that he's gone a little bit dark in East Lansing and maybe that there was some speculation that Texas A&M could open. So I don't know. I'm just here to tell you, I I don't think Urban Meyer is an impossibility. Lastly, let me say, and I know I already said this, if I can give one piece of advice to Texas A&M, just one piece of advice, it's pretty straightforward. Hey, Texas A&M, let's go ahead and make sure you have that guy in place ASAP. Okay, I understand that if it's not Urban Meyer, You're probably not going to get him before two Sundays from now. But my piece of advice, go ahead and get that guy in place ASAP. Because Texas A&M's roster is good enough to win a national championship next year. Their recruiting class is currently in the top 10, and that's after multiple decommitments over the last couple weeks. That recruiting class, that roster, I'm not kidding when I say I think there's probably 10 first-round picks on that projected for that 2024 roster based on what we know right now. 
And if you wait Texas A&M, and if you don't have that guy in place, I'm just telling you, we're about to see the greatest rush of portal talent that we have ever seen if you don't get that guy in place. The Evan Stewart's, the Walter Nolans. You, first of all, let me just make one thing clear. If you don't think those guys, the superstar guys, have been being hit up for weeks at a time, their 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 agents, their whomevers, their high school coaches, whoever helps them, their parents, you don't think those guys have been quietly being hit up behind the scenes? You don't know what you're talking about, okay? They've been being hit up behind the scenes, and the longer you wait to find the next head coach, the more likely it is that you cannot retain a lot of that roster. Now, look, if you lose, you're going to lose a guy, you're going to lose guys because that's the nature of the business. But the idea that you wait and wait and wait and wait and wait, I don't think it's pretty. So Texas A&M fans, uh, best of luck. Texas A&M, let me just say, first of all, Jimbo Fisher, it was fun while we knew you. I have no idea what Jimbo Fisher's going to, what the next part of his career looks like. $75 million to not coach sounds pretty good to me. We will see. Uh, but Texas A&M, if I have one piece of advice, get that next he- head coach in place ASAP. I'm back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Uh, as I said to lead the show, you know it is a crazy Sunday when we don't even lead with the stuff on the field. But with Jimbo Fisher behind us, I do want to switch gears. I do want to talk about the results from Saturday. And you already know, there is only one place for us to start. It is Happy Valley, Pennsylvania, where even if nothing had been going on off the field over the last couple weeks at Michigan, this would have been a mega, mega, mega game. Top 10 matchup, Big Ten East on the line, Big Ten uh, championship on the line, college football playoff berth on the line. There was already plenty coming into this without all the off the field stuff. So when you add in all of the off the field stuff, it shows this was one of the craziest lead ups to a game I can ever remember. And it speaks to how crazy it was. Think about all the stuff that we haven't even talked about on this show. Last time we recorded, Jim Harbaugh was still the head coach at Michigan, wasn't suspended. We didn't know what the Big Ten was going to do. We didn't know if he was going to be allowed on the sideline. So you think about Friday afternoon, and we're going to get into all this at the end because I want to focus on the game. But Friday afternoon, he finds out about 3.30, he's not going to be allowed to coach. We try to figure out, is there going to be an injunction? Will the courts allow him to be on the sidelines even if the Big Ten won't? And so all of this stuff is going on. Again, I promise we'll talk about it at the tail end of this conversation. But at the end of the day, none of it really mattered, right? Because once those two teams took the field, once they were on those sidelines, all that ultimately mattered for Michigan was pretty straightforward. Are you going to win this game? Are you going to put yourself in position to to play Ohio State to win the Big Ten East? Are you going to win this game to put yourself in position to uh, compete for a national championship? You're either are or you're not. If Jim Harbaugh isn't there, you lose. Nobody outside of Ann Arbor is going to care. It's It, it, it go, comes down to the 85 guys in that locker room with the coaching staff that was there. So to see what happened on the field on Saturday, absolutely incredible. As Michigan goes to Happy Valley, finds out literally about 90 minutes before kickoff, Harbaugh is officially not going to be ready, and they go on the field and beat a Penn State top 10 team 24 to 15 final score in what was clearly an emotional day, clearly an emotional week. We saw Sharon Moore on the sidelines after the game. So much credit to Michigan, so much to dive in. So let's go ahead and do that right now. Uh, Let's break this game down because I just give this team so much credit for everything that they did, all the adversity that they overcame in getting this win. 
Now, obviously, by the way, it's worth noting, there is a James Franklin Penn State side of things, mostly James Franklin. We'll talk about that in a minute. But right now, the focus has to be on Michigan. Because again, you think of everything that they went through this week. They come on the field. It isn't pretty. They fall down early. And then they just kind of do what Michigan does, what they've done the last three years. They don't panic. They don't worry. It's clear, and I thought Joel Klatt did a good job of explaining this during the broadcast, that the speed and athleticism of Penn State's defense was giving them fits, so they changed up what they did. And they basically just went back to old-school bully ball Michigan football. It's funny, on Wednesday's show, we talked about this, and Harbaugh actually talked about this in the lead-up to the game. A year ago, the question about Michigan was, can they pass the ball when, when they absolutely need to? This year, though, the run game has been struggling. J.J. McCarthy was awesome coming in, and it was the run game which had been kind of good but not great. Well, I think we got our answers to whether Michigan can run the ball because against an elite top 10 defense pretty much across the board in every statistical category, the numbers speak for themselves. Michigan finished this game. Let me make sure I get all my stats right. Forgive me here. Michigan finished this game. With 227 yards rushing. This against a Penn State defense, which, as I said, is basically elite in every major category. And coming into this game specifically was number two in the country. 60 yards a game Penn State was given up on the ground. 227 yards rushing on the number two ranked rush defense in college football. Uh, and, and the rest of the stats, the stats speak for themselves as well. Five yards per carry, as I said. By technicality, Michigan, how about this? They ran the ball 30 on the final 32 plays of the game. Now, by technicality, there was a pass in there, but there was a penalty called. So because it's a penalty, it doesn't go as a pass in the scorebook. But 32 straight runs starting in the second quarter really didn't even attempt to pass the ball in the second half. J.J. McCarthy, who I thought was probably with a big game, maybe your Heisman Trophy favorite, Finishes, how about this, seven of eight yards passing. But what I love about this, Michigan on the road, interim head coach, Jim Harbaugh isn't there. They get back to their roots and they get back to what works. They pound them. They beat them up at the line of scrimmage. They do just enough to get the victory and credit to the defense, right? The defense, you know, it's it's, it's obviously been a little bit maligned and what did, what did they know and everything involved and all that stuff. Well, uh, you know, I think it's safe to say, and part of it, again, is on Penn State, and we will get to them momentarily. But at the same time, that defense was just so spectacular on this Saturday as Michigan's defense finishes allowing under, you know, right around, I, I want to make sure I have all the stats correct here, but basically in this game, Michigan ended up giving up a grand total of, uh, let's see here, make sure I got my stats right, 238 yards of total offense, uh, oh, by the way, the 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 pass game was held to 74 yards passing by by Michigan's defense. Give up 15 points, but let's be honest, one of those touchdowns came late. We thought they had sealed it with a victory, but this was just old school bully ball Michigan on the road, back against the wall. Everybody's doubting you. Everybody's against you. What do you do? You beat the crap out of somebody and win a game ugly. Everybody on social media had the same reaction. That Bo Schembechler is smiling down from the heavens. That even Woody Hayes enjoyed that one. So that's how Michigan gets the win. Quickly, I want to just talk about the bigger picture stuff here. Because, again, part, and part of it is Penn State, uh, James Franklin was abysmal, okay? But at the same time, we have to take a moment. Let's appreciate 
everything that Michigan went through over the last couple couple days and frankly, a couple weeks to get this win. And I've talked about it on this show, but this is a program that as of right now, let's just, let's just put out the facts. So for the non-Michigan fans, you can yell at me, you can yell at me in the YouTube comments, you can yell at me in the Apple reviews, whatever. But at the end of the day, this is what we know about Michigan football right now. Yes, there was alleged cheating going on. Yes, as many people have pointed out, Michigan never really denies that it happened, just that one, that other teams are basically doing the same, and two, that nobody outside of Connor Stallions knew. And so I bring it up because for the last three weeks, the entire program has been dragged through the mud. Jim Harbaugh, his coordinators, his players, certainly Connor Stallions. Yet as of right now, we have no knowledge that anyone outside of Connor Stallions knew about what was going on, okay? So you're getting dragged. You're being called a cheater. You're being called a fraud. You're being told that everything that you've done the last three years is meaningless because you were cheating your way right through it, okay? And so I bring it up because think about that cloud hanging over your program. Then think about the secondary cloud of what the Big Ten did to Michigan this week. And let me say this, guys guys and girls. I don't swear on this podcast often. I know many people listen with kids and with children. And if you are, I apologize because I'm about to go off. I'm from East Coast. The East Coast is going to come out of me here in a second. So if you don't want to hear it, make sure to turn down. What the Big Ten did to Michigan this week was absolute, I'm not even going to swear. It was absolute nonsense. It was absolute BS. It was absolute garbage. It was insulting to everybody not only at Michigan, but frankly, everybody across the Big Ten. Because here is what drives me so crazy about what happened in Michigan over this week, okay? I started hearing on Sunday night that Tony Petiti was going to take the measure of suspending Jim Harbaugh or punishing Michigan and superseding the NCAA investigation, making the decision that under the sportsmanship policy, he had the authority to do something even if the NCAA couldn't. We can agree or disagree with something if something should have happened or not, okay? Why I bring it up, though, is for this reason. It is because we started hearing that on Sunday. Michigan officially filed its appeal on Wednesday night or whatever the, the, the process is. They gave their documentation to the Big Ten on Wednesday night. Tony Petiti had Wednesday night to make a decision, Thursday night to make a decision, Thursday morning to make a decision. He could have even made a decision Friday morning before Jim Harbaugh got on that plane. And what he did on Friday, I think was the most BS crap that I've ever seen in my life. And I'm going to tell you why. It's because this whole thing is about integrity and sportsmanship. How is it fair to those players to have to get on a plane with their head coach and have no idea if he's going to be able to coach them? And oh, by the way, on top of that, you, they find out when they land. The biggest game of their season for many of those players, the biggest game of their careers. They don't know if their head coach is going to be there. And again, you had about 36 hours between when Michigan submitted their stuff, when the bit when they made the decision, when the team was in the air. And so to do that to those kids, it's the biggest crock of crap that I have ever seen in my life. And I'm so frustrated. And I didn't I didn't plan on becoming a Michigan defender when all this started. But to do what they did, I thought was the biggest piece of crap thing I've ever seen done. Not fair to those kids. Not fair to, frankly, you know who it wasn't fair to? Sharon Moore. Okay. And so let's take half a moment here because I want to credit two, two, two entities here. One. Sharon Moore deserves some, if Michigan wins a national championship, I think they need to put up a, a statue of Sharon Moore, okay? Because keep in mind, this guy's the offensive coordinator. He's the play caller. He's already got a full-time job on his hands 
every Saturday, every one of the most important jobs at the University of Michigan, frankly. And so for him to be the full-time play caller and then to find out that the injunction that was filed is not going to be heard on Saturday morning, that nothing is going to be done. And he's got to then become the head coach an hour before kickoff. No one has ever, I don't think anything has ever happened like that. We've had situations where we've had interim head coaches, but they've had the whole week. They've had the whole off season, whatever to prepare. This guy got thrown into the fire at about 10 a.m. Eastern time on Sunday and found out, oh yeah, by the way, Harbaugh is definitely not coming. You're the guy. So credit to him. He cried after the game. Everyone, you know, I saw this on social media, you know, you know, screw everybody on social media. I saw, oh, that's corny. Oh, that's lame. Oh, that's pathetic. Sharon Moore was so emotional because of everything that that program has been put through. His team has been put through what he has personally been put through. And by the way, they lose that game. Nobody's looking at Jim Harbaugh. They're looking at him and saying, Sharon, respectfully, we love you, but we didn't win that game and our season's on the brink now. So, so. Credit to Sharon Moore. As I said, if Michigan wins a national championship, build that man a statue this year. Beyond that, let me also say this. Let's give some credit to the players, okay? Let's give some credit to the players because as I've said so many times, as I've said so many times, I don't think I've ever seen a group of college athletes as resilient as Michigan is right now. Now, they have two two big games left, potentially without Jim Harbaugh before he comes back, okay? But I bring that up because I've talked about this with with Michigan for a while, is they were my preseason national championship pick, even after we knew Harbaugh was going to be suspended for three games because of the resilience of this group. I've said it many times, but two off-seasons ago, not this year, but last year, Michigan was coming off its first really big season, Big Ten championship, college football playoff loss to Georgia. And that off-season, remember, Jim Harbaugh interviewed for multiple head coaching jobs. He interviewed for the Minnesota Vikings on National Signing Day. And going into two seasons ago, I said, I don't think Michigan, I think Harbaugh lost the locker room. How can his team come back and look, how can he look that team in the eye after what he decided to do? And then what ends up happening? They go 12 and 0 the regular season, beat Ohio State again, make the college football playoff again. So this is a team that has dealt with offseason rumors for two straight years. This for the last three weeks, the Big Ten tried to throw every curveball they could at them before the biggest game of the season, and they delivered. We'll see what happens next for people who haven't followed the legal parameters of this. um, You know, the courts basically are going to meet on Friday. I think it actually hurts Michigan at this point more, more now than anything, because, you know, again, they got to fly out on Friday to go play at Maryland. So we'll see what happens. We know the setup of the punishment. Uh, Harbaugh is still allowed to coach during the week, which that might be a Monday or Tuesday topic is, uh, you know, the big Ten's suspension, I think actually just made everybody mad. Because Michigan fans are mad, but uh, you know Ohio State, other big fan, other Big Ten fans think it's not enough. Harbaugh's allowed to coach during the week; he's just not allowed to be on the sidelines on on Saturday. So I'm not going to keep going on and on. The bottom line is, I want to credit to Michigan. We'll talk about Penn State side of things now because it was maybe James Franklin's worst day as a head coach. But credit to Michigan, the most resilient team that I have ever seen. We'll see if they could finish this regular season in style, play for another Big Ten championship, and potentially a college football playoff berth. All right, quickly, let's switch gears to the Penn State side of things. You know, and Penn State fans, let me just say this. Before we go all in on James Franklin, like I was the guy, I tried to argue against the narrative all summer. I was the guy, I really believe this year was going to be different for Penn State. They finally had the quarterback. Don't believe all the negativity around James Franklin. They just haven't quite been good enough in previous years. 
And this was the year that they finally get over the hump. For people who are new to the show, I did pick Penn State as well as Michigan to make the college football playoff. Really felt like there was a scenario Michigan goes 12 and 0, Penn State goes 11 and 1, or vice versa, and both teams can get in. And so I bring it up because I, I tried to defend Penn State. Few weeks ago, they lose to Ohio State, and that was kind of when I said, you know what, I I, I just don't think it's going to happen. Not a believer in James Franklin, not a believer in what he is about. But let me also say this: Saturday has to be rock bottom. Saturday has to be rock bottom for Penn State fans because of everything that went into it from the Michigan side of things, all of the chaos around the program. The game was there for the taking, and you simply couldn't do it again. Realized during the game, maybe after the game. James Franklin is 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 he's Big Ten marks uh, Big Ten Mark Richt excuse me I was gonna say Mark Stoops Mark Richt he's Big Ten Mark Richt he is the guy that can win all the games that don't matter he can beat the Indianas and the Michigan States and the Rutgers and the whoever but put him in a game with equal uh, with teams that have equal or greater talent in a big moment and what ends up happening it's the same thing every single year gets nervous coaches scared coaches afraid makes weird decisions. And I thought Saturday was one of the most embarrassing coaching displays from a six, seven, eight, nine, ten million dollar a year coach that I've ever seen. Let's go ahead and dive in. I think the first part that you have to be frustrated as is a Penn State fan, besides the loss, obviously. How it happened and the fact that let's be honest, like I, I think what Michigan did was incredible. All the chaos, Sharon Moore being thrown into the fire 90 minutes before kickoff. It doesn't change the fact though that Michigan was essentially trying to give you the game. I mean, when Michigan doesn't throw a pass in the, the, the stat sheet, and I know they threw one, there was a penalty. After the second quarter, when your defense keeps making play after play after play, when Michigan knows that you're crowding the box and they're still running it, trying to chew up the clock rather than be aggressive, what is obvious to me is that like that game was there for the taking for Penn State. And so the frustrating part, the game is there for the taking. In a situation, you're at home, uh, you know, the other head coach is sitting at a hotel and you cannot take advantage. Think about all, like, this is what I think frustrates me the most. couple things. One, the, the, the play calling and the schematics were embarrassing, okay? And I don't claim to be X's and O's guy. We talk about that all the time on the show. But when the offense, every single possession, when, by the way, you're supposed to have literally the best quarterback that you've ever had. The play calling pretty much the entire game. When you know the other team doesn't want to throw the ball, they're just trying to get out with a win. Seemed like every single possession was run on first down. You pick up four, five, six yards. Then they know you're running on second down because you have second and, 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 and mid-range. And they get stuffed. And then third down, it's run Drew Aller. And sometimes it works. And stuff. So the play calling was embarrassing. That's one. Just not creative, not unique. You're you're somehow coaching more scared than the team with the interim head coach on the road. Okay, so that's one. Two, Penn State just has this incredible knack for making the worst possible decisions on the field at the worst possible times. There were so many moments when it felt like the game was about to turn, and then Penn State does something dumb. The big one was obviously they they they. I thought actually Franklin made the smart decision to punt. Uh, you know, late in the game. And ends up, uh, you know, pinning Michigan back. They got to punt the ball back to you. You should get the ball on the other side of your 50. And uh, instead, you end up having a penalty on the return. Drew Aller has a uh, grounding penalty. And all of a sudden, the best field position you're supposed to have all game long, when the score is a one possession game, multiple penalties push you back. So the offense isn't very creative. Penalties come at the worst possible time. But really, 
Saturday was just about just James Franklin. Just it was it was quite literally. I'm not being facetious. I think it was the worst coaching performance that I have ever seen. Literally every single call except for maybe that punt I thought was the wrong one. And they all kind of blew up in his face. I said it on Twitter. I said, I think even Jimbo Fisher is embarrassed about how bad James Franklin is doing right now. But just uh, everything he did was wrong. First off, let me say this. Before the half, they score in the final minute. They get some momentum. They cut the lead to what was it at that point? It would have been what? 14 to, to nine. And they decide to go for two. And I'll be blunt. I know the analytics people will tell you that's the right play. It makes sense. I freaking hated it. And I'll tell you why. Analytics takes into account what happens on the field and, and, you know, all these different scenarios, right? What analytics does not account for, though, what analytics does not account for is what it does if you get it versus if you don't. If you get the two-point conversion, you cut the lead to three, that's great on paper. But if you don't get it, you just suck the air out of the stadium after you just scored to make it a one, you know, to, to, to get things close right before halftime. You score right before halftime, you kick the field goal, everybody's fired up going into overtime. Instead, you score, you miss the PAT. It took the entire air out of the stadium. And it certainly didn't help that early in the second half, they, they the, the play calling got, got lame and weak as well. Beyond that, the other two decisions by James Franklin that were abominable, abominable, were the, uh, the two late game decisions in the final five minutes. The first one, if you somehow didn't watch the game, I mean, I don't know how, you, how you've gotten this far without having seen it. But Penn State is down 17 to nine. It's an, it's a, it's an eight point game, a one possession game. Okay. There's four minutes and 21 seconds left. As I just said, Michigan has been playing not to lose essentially the entire game. And I don't blame them on the road, interim head coach, whatever, but they are not even trying to score the football. All they're trying to do is just pick up enough yards to keep moving the change, to keep the clock moving, to get out of there with a win. And with 421 left on your own 30, you Go for it on fourth down. When everybody thought, and Joel Klatt, I give him credit, man, he was pretty critical of this on the broadcast. You punt the ball back, you make him go probably another 30, 40 yards just to get into field goal range, but they're probably not going to because your defense has been absolutely incredible. So you don't punt the ball, you go for it. The play call is weird, out of a timeout, by the way. And oh, by the way, you don't get it, what happens? Next play of the game, Blake Corm scores what was ultimately the game ceiling touchdown. So you go for it on fourth down. You don't get it. If you had punted, they would have had to go 25, 30, 40 yards just to get in a field goal range. Instead, you decide to go for it. One play later, they have a two-score lead. Here's the crazy part, though. Even after all that, with under four minutes to go, Penn State actually drove the length of the field and scored. Now, there was an interception that got overturned, but whatever, that's not really the point. The point is, however, that... There was a situation late in the game where they score the touchdown. They cut the lead to 24 to 15. And what does James Franklin do? He goes for two again. What are you doing? Like, if you're watching on YouTube, my head just exploded because obviously at that point, it's a nine point game. Kick the PAT, make it an eight point game. It's a one possession game. If you recover the onside kick, you got to score. If you miss the two points, which is exactly what happened, the game's over. The game is essentially over because if you miss the two points, you still have to go two possessions. Even if you get the onside, it's it's whatever. It was just such brain-dead coaching. And I swear, some of these coaches, they get so far in their own heads. I see it every Sunday with Brandon Staley. And it was the same with James Franklin. I didn't like go for it too early. I didn't like going for too late. You know, you're, you're going for it on your own 30 when Michigan, like 
This is what drives me crazy about analytics. There's just no common sense approach of momentum and feel and what's going on in the game. And so all that stuff happens. I thought it was just an abomination of a day for James Franklin. And I'll be blunt. I feel bad for Penn State fans because I don't know how you can come out of the first 10 games of your season feeling anything other than this is never going to happen with this guy as our head coach, right? Because I I look at it and I tweeted it. So first of all, James Franklin. Now let's let's do some quick mental math here before we uh, before we get, switch gears and get to the rest of the day in college football. James Franklin. Now everybody knows the the you know the 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 record against uh, you know top ten teams and top five teams or whatever. But this is now year one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. This is his tenth year at Penn State. Okay, and I would argue you were never in position better than you were this year. One, you got the dudes. Abdul Carter was amazing. The defense was amazing. The the Dennis Sutton kid, uh, you know, that's the hyphenated last name. He was amazing. Chop Robinson, your best defensive player, maybe a a first round pick is back for this game after he's missed two games. But you, 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 you have the dudes one and think about the scenarios in which they caught Ohio state and Michigan. Yes. Ohio state was on the road, but I promise you, this is the worst offense that Ohio state will ever have. Okay. There's no Travion Henderson in that game. Emeka Buka barely played. Kyle McCord certainly is not CJ Stroud, uh, Justin Fields, or the late Dwayne Haskins. Like he is not that dude. And so you get Ohio State with the worst quarterback and the worst offense that they have, they are ever going to have under Ryan Day. Can't get the win. Then what happens? Three weeks later, you get Michigan at home. Michigan has all the chaos we just talked about. Michigan literally did not know two hours before kickoff if their head coach was going to coach or not. Flies with their head coach. They find out mid-air. During the flight that Jim Harbaugh is suspended for three weeks, then they try to file an injunction. Then it's not that like, and you still can't beat Michigan. And so when I look at Penn State, when I look at James Franklin, I just feel bad for those fans because look, it's, it's obviously a situation. We know how this stuff works. One huge contract, huge buyout, whatever. Two, it's just a really bad place to be in. When you know that you have a coach that's going to win you all those big games, but probably isn't going to get you over the hump. And again, if you can't beat Ohio State and Michigan in this season, I don't know how you do it going forward. And to make matters worse, and we've talked about this with all these schools, all these jobs, everything is getting tougher with Oregon and Washington and USC and UCLA coming in next year. So I could go on and on. I feel like I've criticized James Franklin enough, but man, oh man, oh man, it was right there for the taking. It was there. Bad play calling. Team making dumb mistakes at the worst possible time. And your head coach just lets you down once again. What a tough day to be a Penn State fan. By the way, don't think it was sign stealing that has led to Michigan success against you the last few years. You got nobody to look at but yourself in the mirror. All right, everybody. I'm back. Good to be back. Good to be back. I do want to switch gears, and I do want to go ahead and wrap with the rest of the the weekend that was in college football, okay? For those of you who are college basketball fans, I apologize. There's just so much college football news today. We had some big results over the course of the weekend. Arizona beats Duke. Wisconsin loses to Tennessee. Uh, Kentucky picked up a big-time commitment on Sunday afternoon. I promise we're going to cover all of that in the future, But right now, it's about football. There's so much going on. So let's wrap the show on the rest of the weekend that was in college football. A lot of big results that we have yet to talk about. Do want to start with the other top 10 matchup, okay? 
So obviously we know about the top 10 matchup. We just discussed Michigan, Penn state, Michigan wins. It's ugly. All the Harbaugh stuff. It's crazy. But there was a second top 10 matchup on Saturday, Ole Miss at Georgia. Georgia, of course, came in as about 11 and 11 and a half point favorite. And I'll be blunt. I did pick Michigan to beat Penn State, and I didn't know if it'd be close. This one I did expect to be close. Thought Georgia would win, but thought Ole Miss would give them a game. Instead, not the first time ever, I was completely wrong about this game. As Georgia dominates, Georgia wins 30, uh, 51 to 17, excuse me. And let me just say this. We're going to break down the game. We're going to talk about it. But, I, I, you know, we're, we're in a season where we keep trying to make the argument for who's the best and what about this and how good is Michigan and Ohio State's ranked number one. But what about Bama's coming and Oregon this? At the end of the day, this game reaffirmed to me. When Georgia's locked in, when Georgia is focused, when Georgia's at their best, they're, the st- they're still a team to beat in college football, and they're the best we got right now. Not saying they're going to win the national championship, but they are the best. So let's dive into this game. And listen, you know, it went like so many other Georgia games. A lot of hype, a lot of excitement. You're starting to question, okay, is this possibly the moment where they get tripped up in time? And credit to Ole Miss. Like, they came out with a a reasonably good game plan. They scored on the opening drive. But even on the opening drive, they had to convert a fourth down inside their own territory just to keep the chains moving. They score, then Georgia scores, then they score again, then Georgia scores. And then about late first, early second, you just, uh, you know, late first quarter, early second, you just start to see Georgia's kind of pulling away and they're better and they're getting stops and Ole Miss isn't. And all of a sudden it's 28 to 14. All of a sudden, by the way, Georgia has a chance to go up 35 to 14 before the half and there's a late interception. Otherwise, it would have been a 21 point lead going into the break. And then once halftime hit, it was basically official. I mean, just a complete domination and the stats back it up, right? So Georgia, right? It's so funny. Like we think of Ole Miss as this elite offensive team, and it's not to take anything away from Ole Miss, but Georgia just continues to steamroll everybody and continues to put up yards and stats against everybody. This ain't your grandpa's Georgia Bulldogs that that even three, four years ago had to win games 14 to 10, 17, 7, whatever it is. Georgia finishes with 611 yards against Ole Miss, 12 yards per completion. Nine yards per carry. Like I said, this one wasn't even really that competitive. About midway through the second quarter, you could see how how this is going. And Georgia pulls away. Georgia wins a very nice top 10 matchup. And again, it just confirms to me that this is the best team in college football right now. Now, look, like I said, I'm not saying that anything is definitive. I'm not proclaiming here on November 12th or 13th or 14th, whenever you listen to this, that Georgia is definitively winning the national championship. That's not, that's not what I'm saying, okay? Tennessee is going to be tough this weekend. That crowd will be incredible. It always is at Neyland Stadium. Beyond that, we now know that Georgia is officially playing Alabama in the SEC championship game. That is going to be a bloodbath. I think it's worth noting the way things are trending. It feels like only one of those teams is going to make the playoff. And so you know you're going to get your best effort from Georgia. And I think that's the scary part. What's scary to me about this team is that every single time that they are doubted, at least this particular group right now this second, they always respond. I think you can argue the three best games they've played this year. The first one. It was against Kentucky. Remember Kentucky coming in. Kentucky had just beaten Florida. We think Kentucky's pretty good. Ray Davis is doing this. Ray Davis is doing that. What happens? Georgia just destroys them and obliterates them. 
Second game, Florida, both teams out of the bye. Florida has the win against South Carolina a few weeks before. You think, okay, maybe Florida's finally getting some momentum. Uh, No, Georgia completely destroys them. And then again, Saturday against Ole Miss. So one, what stands out to me, besides the fact that the, the talent is through the roof. The other thing is this team plays their best and biggest games. That's what would scare me if I was a Bama fan that knows I'm facing them in the SEC championship game. And that's what would scare me with pretty much anybody that knows um, you know, you're going to have to face Georgia at some point if you want to win a championship is there have been times in the past, especially programs that have had a ton of success, right? Uh, uh, USC under Pete Carroll, Miami. I remember, and I've said this story before, but the Miami hurricanes in the early two thousands, I remember talking to one of their assistant coaches years after the fact. And he basically said they didn't even realize at the time that the program was starting to erode within because there was so much arrogance and entitlement in the program. There were so many guys that that kind of showed up and assumed because I signed with Miami, that means I did all the stuff that Ed Reed did and Edger and James did and Andre Johnson did and Vince Wilfork did. And so I bring it up because that's probably the most impressive part about this Georgia thing to me is the fact that Kirby can keep these guys locked in and bought into the greater good of 2023 without these guys sitting here saying, well, we already won in 2022. We already won in 2021. 2023 is guaranteed. The other thing that I think is impressive, it's what I said a minute ago. This is not the Georgia Bulldogs of even two years ago when they had N'Kobe Dean, that great defense, Jordan Davis, and for the most part, they had to win low-scoring games. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. Remember, two years ago in the SEC championship game, they lost to Alabama. And even then, there were idiots like me saying, I don't know if this Georgia team's offense is good enough, if the passing game specifically is good enough to win a national championship. You're going to have to beat Alabama again. You're going to have to beat Michigan at the time in the playoff. How are they going to do it? And then Stetson Bennett was awesome. They win a natty that year, win a natty the year after. And now you look at 2023. I don't know how many people realize this. You know who has the second highest passing attack in the SEC behind only LSU and Jaden Daniels, who we're going to get to in a second? It's the Georgia Bulldogs. I think Carson Beck should be a Heisman Trophy candidate. I truly believe that in my heart of hearts. Uh, But even if he isn't, this is now an elite passing attack. The run game is great, and the defense is great. And the crazy part is, I don't want to say they're getting healthier because one of their best defensive players is out for the foreseeable future, Jamon Demaz Johnson, but Brock Bowers is back. Uh, Some of these guys uh, that were injured in the middle of the year are starting to get healthy. So I could go on and on. Credit to Georgia. Top 10 matchup. Don't even know what else there is to say. Just an unbelievable effort from this team. They deserve all the credit that they're getting. And to me, listen, I don't care if Ohio State's ranked number one in the country come Monday. I don't care if Michigan beats Ohio State, they end up number one. If Georgia makes that field of four, they are the team to beat. And as I said, that game against Alabama coming three weeks from now, two weeks from now, whatever it is, it will be a good one. From the Ole Miss perspective, listen, I'll just be very brief on Ole Miss. I don't think there's really much to add. You know, you you feel bad. I think Lane Kiffin is doing about as good of a job as anybody could do at Ole Miss. It's kind of funny. We mentioned him with the Texas A&M thing a minute ago. Like, if you're Lane Kiffin, I, I do think at some point you start to hit a wall, right? Because at Ole, I'm not trying to disrespect Ole Miss, but it does feel like he won 10 regular season games two years ago. He's probably going to win 10 regular season games this year. And I don't know that it's going to get better than that. You have Alabama. 
You have Georgia in your conference. LSU, I mean, you needed every ounce of energy to beat LSU this year only to get steamrolled by Alabama, only to get steamrolled by Georgia. Now, obviously, you have Texas and Oklahoma coming in. I'm not saying Lane Kiffin is leaving for another job. As I said a minute ago, if he left for Texas A&M, that would be the most hysterical thing I've ever seen, not saying that I necessarily see it. Uh, but I just feel bad because I, I I don't know how much more you can realistically elevate that program in the current status of the SEC, but then in whatever the SEC is going to look like a year from now. I understand the playoff is expanding, but so is the talent pool in that league. Uh, Texas just won its ninth game of the season. Oklahoma is trending the right way under Brent Venables. It's about to get crazy. Feel bad for Lane Kiffin. Another good season, but you just wonder what that ceiling is. And you wonder how much longer he kind of keeps banging his head against the wall, knowing that he simply just does not have the dudes to compete at the top, top, top of the league. Let's keep it going. A couple other games. You know, the first game that I want to talk to, it's kind of funny. I didn't even talk about it on the college football betting show because coming into LSU, Florida, you kind of felt like, okay, this was once upon a time a great rivalry. But Florida isn't very good, and even as of like mid-last week, we didn't even know if Jaden Daniels was going to play in this game. And so we didn't really talk about it on the Wednesday preview show. We didn't really talk about it on the Friday preview show. And so, like, it wasn't – I don't want to say it wasn't on my radar. It's always a big game. But then the game happened, and we got to talk about LSU-Florida because here's why. Jaden Daniels literally had – one of the best games in college football history. And I know I'm one for hyperbole, and I know I go crazy talking about stuff sometimes, but it isn't hyperbole to say that Jaden Daniels had one of the best games in college football history as LSU beats the Florida Gators 52-35. to Let's break in. Let's dive it down. By the way, we'll talk about the Heisman race in a minute because I think if you're arguing for anyone other than Jaden Daniels, you're in the wrong. We'll get to that momentarily. But as far as this game is concerned, listen, Jaden Daniels was, I I mean, there is no word to describe it. Unbelievable. I I, I was watching the game and I I was sitting there thinking, I go, I think this is the best performance I've ever seen in my life. I watched Lamar Jackson. I watched Cam Newton. I watched Johnny Manziel. I think this is the best thing I've ever seen. And you don't want to get caught up in the moment. And then the game goes final. You realize, oh my God, that might've been the best performance we've ever seen. Jaden Daniels finishes the game. I know most people know the stats by now, but let me read them off to you in case you did not know. Jaden Daniels, the LSU quarterback, he finishes this game. How about this? 17 of 26 passing for 372 yards and three touchdowns. That's pretty good. That's a career game in and of itself. But how about this? He also had 234 yards rushing and two touchdowns as well. So 372 yards passing, 234 yards rushing, over 600 yards of total offense by himself, five touchdowns. He became the first player ever in FBS history to account for 350 passing yards, 250 rushing yards. Again, don't mean to go over the top here, but it's Tim Tebow never did it. Cam Newton never did it. Johnny Manziel never did it. Lamar Jackson, Deshaun Watson, go through the great dual threat quarterbacks that can beat you with your arms and your legs. None of them ever did what Jaden Daniels did on Saturday night. And again, watching that game, I don't feel like it's hyperbolic to say it was the best performance I've ever seen. Statistically, it was certainly one of the greatest of all time. More importantly, though, and this is the conversation I think is coming out. Jaden Daniels should be your Heisman Trophy favorite right now this second. Okay, And I would say this, Heisman feels not only wide open, doesn't really feel like they're obvious candidates. 
To me, it feels like Bo Nix at Oregon is right in the short conversation. I feel like Michael Penix at Washington is. I don't think you should dismiss Jaden Daniels, though. And as a matter of fact, I think Jaden Daniels should be the favorite as of this second. Bottom line, first of all, I know what everyone's going to say. Well, they've lost three games. And what have I said since that? I think I said it in the Missouri game. It was the last week of September, first week of October. I said point blank. I don't care if they've already lost two games, and I don't care now with Alabama that they lost three. Because without Jada Daniels, they would have lost at least one or two more. Missouri probably could have and maybe should have lost if it wasn't for Jaden Daniels. They beat Arkansas by three, 34 to 31 is the final score. They barely survive, uh, you know, in, in other spots. And so you look at them. Yeah, they're a three-loss team. They'd probably be a four or five-loss team without him. And beyond that, the stats, when you really break them down, they are insane, Okay. So here are the stats that you need to know about Jaden Daniels. I'm just going to read them off to you, okay? You know Jaden Daniels. Here are the stats. He's number one in the country in passing touchdowns, 30 touchdown passes. He's number three in passing yards in all of college football. It's worth noting one of the guys ahead of him, Caleb Williams, has played one more game than him. So that's important. Number seven in completion percentage. So top 10 nationally in touchdown passes, passing yards, and completion percentage. Here's the crazy part. He's also the third leading rusher in the SEC. Of every running back, wide receiver, quarterback, if you will, if you want to, you know, whatever. Anyone who has ever touched a football in the SEC this season, he's third in rushing as a quarterback. He's in the top 35 nationally in rushing. The only quarterback in the top 35 nationally is actually like 26th, 27th overall. You want some context? He's got 918 yards rushing. So he's almost at 1,000 yards rushing. You want some context to show you how crazy this is? Jalen Milrow, the Alabama quarterback, we all agree, great dual threat guy, can beat you with your arms and his legs. Jalen Milrow has 333 yards rushing this year, as in a third of what Jalen, Jaden Daniels has, excuse me. And so I don't want to go on and on, but to me, when I look at this, the Heisman is supposed to be about the best individual player in college football. Well, we've had guys on two and three and four loss teams win it before that aren't in the national championship hunt. Johnny Manziel won it with two losses at AM. Uh, who else? Tim Tebow lost won it with three losses at Florida. Lamar Jackson won it with three losses at Louisville. At the end of the day, this is the award for the most outstanding player in college football. Not the best player on the best team. Jaden Daniels, to me, has been the most outstanding player so far this season. Now, could it change? If Bo Nix runs the table, if Bo Nix beats Michael Penix head-to-head, if Michael Penix beats Bo Nix for a second time, I think those guys are in the conversation. But right now, I think Jaden Daniels should be your favorite for the Heisman. Really quickly, oh boy, really quickly, I do want to talk about the other perspective of LSU Florida. LSU again wins 52-35, to and Jaden Daniels has that incredible performance that I just told you about, 600-plus yards Uh, of total offense, five touchdowns, all that good stuff. Well, I bring it up because there has to be another side to that. And while you don't want to take anything away from Jaden Daniels, we also have to acknowledge something. In a year where Florida started off bad all the way back in August, it is now week 11. There are two games left. The Florida Gators sit at five and five. I'm just going to say it. It was another really bad moment in time for Florida and overall just a really bad day and a really bad couple weeks 
for Billy Napier and the Gators. Doesn't mean Billy Napier is getting fired tomorrow. Doesn't mean he even should be fired. But what I'm here to tell you is every single game the Gators play, it becomes increasingly clear to me that bluntly, he's probably not the guy at Florida. First of all, let's just go back to, 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 to Saturday night, okay? And again, I don't want to dismiss what Jaden Daniels did because it was so incredible and you feel so terrible. Um, you know, you just you you feel bad discrediting him by talking about Florida. Jaden Daniels was incredible. We just talked about it. We don't need to go over it again. At the same time, though, I'm just gonna read you the stats from the Florida offensive perspective or the Florida defensive perspective, okay? Florida on Saturday night against LSU, and I get LSU's offense is elite. Florida gave up 701 yards of total offense. 701 yards of total offense. And here is the crazy part. It gets even worse. You don't think it could get worse. It does. 372 yards passing, an average of 14 yards per completion. 14 yards per completion, gave up 329 yards rushing, 9.5 yards per completion. So essentially, every single play that LSU ran essentially resulted in a first down. That's not obviously literally true. But they gave up 14 yards per completion, 9.5 yards per carry. That is abominable. I know we just used that word to talk about James Franklin, but that is abominable. That is embarrassing. And here's the sad part for Florida, is that this is just the latest embarrassing thing in a season full of embarrassing moments for the Gators. Go back to week one. I know it was Utah. Utah's pretty good. Utah's also a 7-3 and three team that has lost three times in their league and easily could have lost a fourth to USC a few weeks ago. Utah's a team that got destroyed by Oregon. Utah's a team that has lost other games. They kind of punked Florida. They kind of beat them up at the line of scrimmage, and they won a game convincingly that wasn't even that close. Here's the problem, though. Just think about the rest of the week. It keeps getting worse. The rest of the year, excuse me, it keeps getting worse. First of all, a few weeks later, they get back on track. They beat Tennessee. Everybody thinks they're, they're, they're doing good. Then they lose to Kentucky when Ray Davis has 280 yards of total offense. Or 280 yards rushing, excuse me. So Ray Davis, 280 yards rushing. A record-setting day in the bluegrass. Then last week, by the way, they barely survived South Carolina, who's terrible. They get destroyed by Georgia. And then last week, they lose to Arkansas at home. It was and is Arkansas's only SEC win of the year. Arkansas proceeded to follow that up by getting destroyed by Auburn at home. Shout out Hugh Freeze. We'll talk about him maybe in a minute. But I bring it up because every week is a new embarrassment for Florida. You're losing at home to a team in Arkansas you should never lose to. You're giving up 700 yards of total offense to LSU. 280 yards rushing to Kentucky. And it comes back to something I've talked about with Billy Napier. I know that Dan Mullen left a mess. No one is denying that. But Florida football should never be this bad. And I know they're 5-5, five and five, and in theory they can go to a bowl game. We'll get to that momentarily. But Florida football should not be this bad. And Billy Napier, we're in the transfer portal era. I've said it before. Billy Napier has had four transfer portal cycles since he took over to fix this roster. The winter when he took over in the winter of 2021 into 22, the spring of 2022, the winter of 2022 into 2023, and then the 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 the, the spring this past spring in 2023. 
That's four transfer portal cycles, plus obviously two full recruiting classes. And I understand the 2022 class, you were way behind when you got the job. I'm not saying you got to beat Bama and Georgia because all these schools with first, second year head coaches, even in the portal era, have holes. LSU's defense, USC's defense, Colorado's still pretty much a mess everywhere. Auburn has a lot of places to get stuff worked out. Nobody's asking you to get things figured out, but Auburn just, by the way, Auburn in the much tougher SEC West just got bowl eligible by beating the same team that you lost to at home the other day. So don't tell me it's strictly the schedule or strictly the SEC. This is on Billy Napier. A couple other things. One, it ain't going to get any easier because you got Missouri on the road and Florida State at home to end the regular season. That's a combined 19 wins, by the way. I think, no, 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 18 wins. I think Florida State is 10 and 0. I think Missouri's 8 and 2, if my math is correct. So that's a combined 18 and 2 you're going up against. But you know what the really bad part is? You know what made Saturday the worst day ever for Billy Napier? It's that they also, Billy Napier has been selling all offseason, or he hasn't been selling it, but 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 his supporters have been selling, well, he's killing it in recruiting, so we got to give him the benefit of the doubt. Well, guess what happened a little bit before kickoff of this game? A five-star defensive lineman flipped and is now going to Auburn. A five-star defensive lineman has now flipped and is going to Auburn, and so you've been selling that, oh my goodness, well, at the very least, we're going to get things figured out and blah, 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 blah. And we're, you know, we got the recruiting class coming in and, and trust me, the recruiting class is still good. It's still ranked fourth in the country, according to 24-7 sports. DJ Lagway is still a dog uh, as a quarterback recruit. But at the same time, one of the backbones and bedrocks of that recruiting class, a player by the name of Jamonte Waller, has been committed to you since the summer and flipped right before this game. And so here's my question. You're getting you're getting embarrassed on an almost weekly basis. You're losing to teams that Florida should never lose to. And oh by the way, the recruiting that was supposed to be your area of expertise, the thing that was going to save you, you just lost one of your best recruits. Crazy time at Florida, tough time for Billy Napier. And I don't know how this gets fixed. I'm not saying he's going to get fired this offseason, he's not. But you start looking at that schedule next year. They got Florida State and Miami out of conference, plus a new loaded SEC slate because, of course, how things break with the scheduling with uh, with Texas and Oklahoma coming in. So all of a sudden, the schedule somehow gets tougher because you're no longer in the SEC. Or you're no longer in the SEC East, excuse me. And um, and and you also have Miami and Florida in the out-of-conference, Florida State in the out-of-conference schedule. Let me see if I can find the schedule really quick because you guys are going to think I'm crazy when you when I read you this schedule. Here is Florida's 2024 schedule as we get set for next fall. In the out-of-conference, they open the season in my, against Miami at home. They have Central Florida. They still play Georgia. They play Florida State to end the year. They still have LSU, Ole Miss, Texas A&M, and they do have a game at Texas plus the return game to Tennessee. So you talk about a crazy schedule. Miami, Florida State on uh, on the road in the out of conference plus Central Florida. And then on top of that, in conference, you have at Texas, at Tennessee. Uh, you obviously have the Georgia game that gets played every single year. You still have LSU. You got Ole Miss. You got Texas A&M. Billy Napier, I try to defend you, buddy. You got to start winning some games that matter. You got to start being some competitive. You have to stop being embarrassed every single time your team takes the field. We'll see what happens from here.
couple other notes from across the weekend in college football. And again, I promise you, for those of you who love the basketball stuff, we are going to get to basketball. There's just so much going on in football. From the football perspective, couple couple of the results. You know, one, the Pac-12 continues to just, we keep waiting for somebody to fall, for there to be some sort of movement. Hasn't really happened. Washington took care of business against Utah, and Washington now is 10-0. First time since 2014, by the way, I believe it is, that that a Pac-12 team has started 10-0. and So congrats to the Huskies. This looked like a game that on paper could have been a trap game. They get the win. Doesn't get any easier next week, though. They go to Oregon State, really good team on the road. Then they close at home against their rival Washington State in the Apple Cup. So credit to Washington for getting the win there. Oregon, by the way, for those of you who did not stay up late, they kind of held serve. They beat USC. At home, 36-27 is the final score. Close at Arizona State and Oregon State to end the regular season. So Oregon State, you want to talk about a team that could potentially play spoiler? Host Washington this weekend at Oregon to end the regular season. But if both those teams win out, Oregon and Washington, they will play for the Pac-12 title. The winner will go to the college football playoff. That has not officially been confirmed yet. You know, I mentioned earlier, but it is worth noting, Alabama's win at Kentucky confirms that Alabama is headed to the SEC title game to play Georgia. Georgia actually clinched the SEC East title when Tennessee lost to Missouri. So we know what's going on there. Texas survived by the skin of their teeth. Another second half meltdown. We're in control. End up winning the game 29-26. First nine win regular season of Steve Sarkeesian's career. So the Big 12 is kind of shaking itself out. couple other results. You know, one, let me just say this. I haven't really, by the way, Miami beats Florida or Florida State beats Miami. They're in control in the ACC. One team that I have not given credit to, okay? And I know I got listeners of the show. I see the analytics. Can we take a moment and shout out my guy, Jed Fish? Jed Fish of the Arizona Wildcats should be in the short conversation for National College Football Coach of the Year. For people who aren't paying attention, Jed Fish in Arizona are now 7-3 and three this season. They have won four straight in the process of beating three ranked opponents. Oregon State, whose only other loss this year, it was early in the year to Washington. Oregon State is actually very much in the Pac-12 championship game title race as well. They beat Washington State. They beat UCLA. So three straight wins over ranked teams. And then Saturday, they beat Colorado at Colorado on senior day for the Buffaloes. Arizona overall 7-3. and three. Here are their three losses. In overtime at Mississippi State to Washington by seven and in double overtime to USC. I think it's worth noting, by the way. And I think any Arizona fan that's listening, uh, their starting quarterback, Jaden Delora, got hurt. And they put in this kid, Noah Fafita. How about my guy, Noah Fafita, enters the game against Washington a few weeks ago uh, and then goes toe-to-toe with Caleb Williams against USC. He actually outplayed Caleb Williams, honestly, in that game. He has been the difference in four straight wins. Uh, freshman kid from California, but he is just a galvanizer. He rallies that team, and he has helped them get some wins. Credit Arizona. They're a great story. By the way, AT Media, we're selling our Gone Fishing t-shirts, baby. Shout out to Jed Fish for the win. Uh, I mentioned earlier, Auburn, great Saturday. Destroy Arkansas, get bowl eligible. So credit to Hugh Freeze. We'll maybe do a separate Auburn segment later on in the week. Because he's having a monster week. Flipped the five-star from, from Florida. Uh, got some big recruits on uh, on Sunday. They got a couple other guys. And they are going bowl. bowl uh, they are bowl eligible. That is a guy that I believe is built for the SEC and Hugh Freeze. I think they're going to get it done. 
it, the league is going to get tougher. Goes without saying. LSU still good. Georgia, Alabama, plus Texas and Oklahoma. My boy Hugh Freeze, though, he's getting the job done. All right, I think that's it for this episode of the Aaron Torres Pod. What a Sunday of college football. Okay, there's so much going on. I don't even know how to squeeze it all in, uh, but I do think it is time for me to get out of here. If you're not subscribed to the Aaron Torres Pod, please make sure to do so. Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed to the show. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter at Aaron Torres pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. I know I've said it a few times, but if you love college basketball, I think the middle of this week is when we start to ramp that side of things up. Okay. Champions classic is on Tuesday. We will talk Kentucky, Kansas. We will talk Michigan state, uh, Duke on Wednesday's Aaron Torres pod. We'll probably be going live Wednesday on YouTube. So make sure that you're subscribed. Shout out to uh, all the teams that had success in college hoops this weekend. By the way, Tennessee, a mega win at Wisconsin. Arizona, as I predicted on Friday's show, gets the win at Duke. Time for me to go, though. Time for me to get out of here. Appreciate your support. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. Shout out to JJ Reddick. You have it. Unblock me, bro. I'll be back Wednesday. Maybe Tuesday. Maybe somebody else, something else will happen. Maybe Texas A&M will have their coach by now. I don't know. Crazy Sunday. I'll be back. Aaron Torres Pod. See you soon, everybody.